This is episode 105 of Alohomora for October 11th, 2014. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to MuggleNet.com's global reread of Harry Potter. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kristen Keyes. And I'm Kat Miller. And our very special guest today is author and fellow Potterhead, Veronica Roth. Hello. Hi. Thank you so very much for joining us today. We're very excited to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so just in case there's anybody out there who's been under a rock for, you know, the past couple <laughs> years, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I wrote some books. Um, they are called, <laughs> sorry, um, <laughs> they're called Divergent, Insurgent, Allegiant, and Four. Um, and I am a Hufflepuff. Oh. Yes, that's right. A Wonderful. St- staunch badger. And um, my Patronus <laughs> is an albatross. Um, oh, in case anyone was wondering, that's an that's an interesting Patronus. Yeah, what is it about the albatross? Well, it's larger than average, which is also me. Um, <laughs> so, I'm a very very tall. Oh, tall. Okay, I was like, yeah, not like giant, just yeah, and sort of ungainly. You know, me and the bird. Um, but they're also known for they're kind of like very loyal birds. They're monogamous, which is odd for birds. And uh, they crash land instead of landing (laughs) with grace and elegance, which (laughs) seems about right to me. So those are just, you know, a few reasons. Oh, well, I like it. I've never heard someone say albatross before. So I I like it when it's unique, you know, Mm -hmm. like mine is a cat, not exciting. Share that with Umbridge. I know, which is a little scary. Maybe <laughs> when, um, hopefully, Joe puts that Patronus test on Pottermore, mm. hopefully I can take it and it will be something different. Because I feel like it's it's just by default since my name is Cat. Oh, maybe. Mm. You know, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> well, it's kind of fitting that you ladies were talking about Patronuses because uh, this week in Chapter 27, The Centaur and the Sneak, we will be talking a lot about Patronuses, and we want to remind our listeners to make sure and read that chapter of Order of the Phoenix before listening to the show to get the full experience out of our discussion. Before we go on and talk about that, we just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Audible. Exclusively for fans of Alohomora, they are offering a free audio download. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, so head over to audiblepodcast.com open to get yours now. All right, next we're going to go into recapping the comments from last week. Um, I have a few to share with you all. The first one is from Hufflepug from the main site. I love the social commentary that comes with Umbridge's banning of the Quibbler. It makes me think of how banned books end up being some of the most popular books ever because people want to know what all the hype is about. Hermione was one step ahead because she knew exactly how Umbridge would react and how the students would respond to that which is an example of how she's socially intelligent as well as academically intelligent. This combined with Hermione's manipulation of Rita Skeeter brings out some Slytherin in her, in my opinion. And it's the very best kind of Slytherin. For example, willingness to alter the environment and break the rules to work towards, for lack of a better term, the greater good. Oh, but um, bum the greater good. <laughs> um, yeah, like... I do think that's a little bit of Slytherin, and I totally love it. 
because mm-hmm. you know everyone knows like I'm 51% Ravenclaw, 49% Slytherin. <laughs> um, so I dig it. I dig that that's out of Hermione. I like it. Yeah. I love how it's both socially intelligent and academically intelligent because usually it's one way or the other, but Hermione definitely has both sides and was quick thinking on her part. Mm-hmm. I really like the comparison to, to the mentality around banned books, um, mm. especially because mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, I think, I think these, it's funny because with, with banned books, the, the kind of the, how, how we portray that in libraries and bookstores and we do the banned books week and everything. And people are just, I think at this point, so accustomed to seeing some of the books that land on the list that they're like, oh yeah, Harry Potter on banned books, whatever. But back when the books first came out, it was a pretty big deal. Like every time the books got challenged, there was a news report about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of, I, I, people are kind of a little blase, I think, as far as Harry Potter goes when people attack Harry Potter now, because it, it climbed above it. But I, I liked that Joe was so aware of it at the time that she was writing the books that she put it in the books. Yeah. Didn't she say at one point that she was proud or something that was on the banned book list? Mm-hmm. I feel like it is kind of also. like a badge of badge of honor um, because, yeah. I mean, not that it, I've experienced this, but I just think it makes people so aware that there's something provocative in in the stories that I don't know. It's just like, oh well, now I have to know what it is. Um, yeah. All right. This comment comes from Tweak Six from the forums. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You guys discussed a theory of Dumbledore using legitimacy every once in a while on Harry just to check up on things. Does nobody else think this sounds incredibly creepy, like a huge invasion of privacy? I get the feeling Dumbledore is able to gain plenty of information with breaking into people's minds. He has lots of staff to ask about. Snape is giving him private lessons at this point, and he can probably read body language. Harry seems to be functioning pretty normally, and anything Voldemort-related, Dumbledore is hearing through Snape. So, legitimacy is totally unnecessary. I always thought the scene was just to stress Harry's feeling of being ignored and abandoned by Dumbledore. It makes perfect sense in that, of course, all of the staff are currently discussing Harry and his interview. It's not out of place for Dumbledore to look over at him. So, so go ahead, oh, go ahead, Kat. No, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was in reference to the moment when Dumbledore is, Harry notices that Dumbledore is looking at him from the staff table when the Quibbler article comes out. And uh, Kat was wondering, actually, if it wasn't something to do with Harry's connection to Voldemort and the Horcrux and why Dumbledore turned away when Harry was looked around at him and why D- Harry could sense that Dumbledore was looking at him. I suggested that Dumbledore perhaps is using legitimacy at times like these to check up on Harry. And I never said that wasn't creepy. That's super <laughs> creepy. <laughs> but Dumbledore is yeah. kind of sus like that. So I wouldn't put it past that him to do that. It wouldn't be the first time that they've actually, I mean, in the seventh book, Harry's using um, the Imperious curse on people mm-hmm. like to get into Gringotts. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they, keep just running around using unforgivable curses. What's so out of the ordinary about Dumbledore using legitimacy? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I hope and, it's not the case because that would... Uh, well, and narratively, <laughs> the, the book has given us more obvious hints when Dumbledore uses legitimacy. I think it's usually when sh- when Joe in the writing points out that he, he has his piercing stare locked in on Harry. That, I would think, is an, a definitive indication that Dumbledore is using legitimacy on Harry, which in itself is 
not okay when you think about it. Um, but it usually gets Harry out of scrapes. But I've just wondered if Dumbledore doesn't use legitimacy more often than not, and that's perhaps one of the ways why he's so aware of everything that's going on in Hogwarts. I mean, if I could use legitimacy, <laughs> I feel like that would be helpful in certain situations. I agree. Mm-hmm. I'm not always the best at reading body language. So I'm like, if I could just hear what you're saying. Uh, like sometime in the future, when mm-hmm. I get to meet Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> I could I could use legitimacy to see what he's thinking. I like that you state that as an inevitability. I will oh. meet Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're only like two degrees separated. So oh, really? It's hmm. going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> So, it is. It's inevitable. Well, and to go back to the comments. Oh, um, but it's so fun sorry. to just talk about yeah. the summer badge all day. Yeah. I'm going to be there for that. There, um, the, the, the argument that Tweak6 is making, too, is that Dumbledore gets all of his news through Snape. But I would think that Dumbledore would be smart enough to not take all of his news from Snape, seeing as Snape has a horrible bias when mm-hmm. reporting. Um so I would think Dumbledore would look for other sources, including breaking into people's minds if he so felt the need. Oh, Do you think Snape is 100% honest always with Dumbledore? No. I, I think he's honest, <laughs> but I think he, the way that he... You can be honest, but still tell things in a way that doesn't portray them as they are. Um, like, he's he's telling the... He's, he's essentially telling the facts... But he's also lacing it with, you know, Potter is an idiot. Potter is stupid. I hate Potter. Potter, Potter, Potter. Like, he's not saying it nicely, but he's telling the truth, I would think. Hmm. We okay. kind of get that in Deathly Hallows, right? When we see how Snape and Dumbledore converse mm, in the that's memories. True. That's true, yeah. True. So. All right. And then this last comment is from Minerva Lupin from the main site. To address the Trelawney scene from the book and movie that was brought up, I find the fact that Professor Trelawney not being drunk in the movie made her feel sadder towards her than her being drunk as in the book. The emotions in the movie just felt more powerful and heart-wrenching to me since her pain is really raw, authentic, and not inhibited by Sherry. Besides, this is a PG-13 movie, and I doubt they want to encourage drinking as a solution to get over pain and problems. Also, it does not really do anything to the plot in having Trelawney drunk in this scene or not. I would have to agree with this comment. I mean, it didn't really matter to me that she wasn't drinking the sherry in the movie, like I know you guys talked about in the last episode. Um, So, I don't know. What do you guys think? It only struck me because prior to Order of the Phoenix, Emma Thompson was really excited to play the scene that yeah, way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She actually reported that she was she was really looking forward to it. And I think in the book, this is pretty, like, the way that it goes down is very iconic. And I remember seeing it in the movie, and I just felt that it was kind of a waste of their Emma Thompson. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is all the time you've got with her, and you just want to stand around and have her cry and say two lines, and that's all. Um, Michael I, loves Order of the Phoenix movie. <laughs> no, I do not. Cats <laughs> loves I, Order of the Phoenix movie. I thought she did great. I mean, yeah. to me, I think of someone being drunk and sloppy, and you have those people who get drunk and are like so overly emotional about nothing 
that I, I don't know if it would be portrayed like that. And then you're like, all right, she's just drunk. Who cares what her emotions are? Like her. She seemed far more vulnerable in the movie mm-hmm. to me than she did yes. in the book, which, um, you know, it isn't a problem that she's not super vulnerable in the book, but when you only mm-hmm. have two seconds of screen time with Emma Thompson, you want to cultivate as much sympathy toward her character as possible in that time. That's true. Agreed. Since mm-hmm. the rest of her time on this in the movie isn't even there, she's not there. Yeah. Um, but at the same, I almost feel like the comment, actually, like from Minerva Lupin, actually like contradicts itself because it's saying, well, it actually does change how Trelawney is portrayed. But it doesn't actually change anything about Trelawney's plot. And I think that's, that I'm mixed on that, actually, because the way that it does, it does change how we see Trelawney. I was, I was really just, I know Emma Thompson had her vision for how she wanted to, to, to act it. And I was like, I, that's one of those lost moments for me. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, could, I don't know if you guys have ever seen on the deleted scenes of Order of the Phoenix, Umbridge's whole speech, they actually filmed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. from Trelawney's, like, just Eating. the camera was on. Yeah, her all the time. And she's, yeah. like, doing all these weird things where she, like, starts washing her hands in her wine glass. And, yeah, it's great. Like, <laughs> it goes on <laughs> for the whole speech. And you know what? I, I have to see it. Oh, my God. Yeah, I want to see that. You know what I was thinking of is um, we already know what drunk Trelawney would look like if you watched the Oscars. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and come on, that would have been yeah. amazing. So... <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like Emma Thompson. I don't Emma sympathize Thompson, with that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Emma Thompson's just one of those people who, when she has something in her mind, you just say, "Okay, go, go do what you want to do," because sure. you're Emma Thompson. Right. So <laughs> I would concur. Great. I'm just upset, Emma Thompson. Give me a call, and we'll <laughs> we'll remake the movies. You can still play Trelawney. <laughs> I'm sure she'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and now we're going to move on to the podcast question of the week responses from last week. And just to remind everybody of the question, it was mine, for the record. (laughs) It says, in this chapter, we see Umbridge try to sack Professor Trelawney. Now, both she and Hagrid are on probation, the result of Umbridge's evaluations. So why Trelawney? Was it based purely on performance, or was Umbridge working on the orders of someone else? Lord Voldemort, perhaps? Trelawney is, as we later learn, important to his current mission of trying to recover the prophecy. We have suspected Umbridge was working with or for Lord Voldemort before. Is this just another coincidence, or is she indeed working for the Dark Lord? So, sadly, nobody agreed with me <laughs> at all, or even indulged me you in, know... in a little bit. We just got to get a time machine, go back to the early 2000s when these theories would have been plastered all over the internet. That's true. That's true. Um, and a lot of people were like, Kat, she's not a Death Eater. Let me be clear. Never said she was a Death Eater. All right. Obviously, she's not because she's too short. Um <clears throat> No, sorry, that has nothing to do with it. I feel like there was that was like a really good stretch of a Stormtrooper Star Wars reference right there. Like... Oh, was, that was definitely what I meant by that. <laughs> it was good. So, You're a little short to be a Death Eater? Yeah. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> definitely what I meant. Pun totally intended. Totally. But um, our first comment here comes from Dolphin Patronus. It says, I've never felt like Umbridge was working directly with Voldemort. I do, however, believe that they have the same thought process. 
Though, in this case, I don't think her choice of Trelawney has anything to do with the prophecy. In fact, I doubt Umbridge has a clue about any of that. I believe her choice of Trelawney over Hagrid is because she doesn't think Dumbledore will be able to find a suitable replacement and is trying to make him look worse than he does in the public eye right now. So, thoughts? Mm. Hmm? I, I like your question. I actually kind of agree with yes. you. <laughs> Thank you. I've always thought it like she was right? somehow connected with him or in that group. Because definitely in Deathly Hallows, like just on the ministry side, when it gets, you know, converted and everything, she's so happy about it and just down with any half blood, you know, muggle, anything like that. Right? She just wants pure bloods. And even though, of course, she's like a little too, it. In, she's a little too into it, right? Exactly. Strongly disagree. <laughs> oh, well, let's hear it. What do you think? Well, what I love about Umbridge is that she is, in Dungeons and Dragons terminology, as far as alignment, lawful evil, um, ah. which means that she works within the system, but has like you know bad intentions and doesn't value life or freedom, you know, stuff like that. So I think she's like you know, the Harry Potter equivalent of, like, a horrible racist. Um, but she also... <laughs> but wait, worked... she is a horrible racist. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah. yeah, it's totally true. But, um, you know, not as we would think of it, obviously. Of course. Magically. Mm-hmm. Magically so. Um, <laughs> magical racism. Yeah, magical racist. <laughs> I think that makes her so different from Voldemort because um, he's, like, what would it be? It's chaotic evil, I guess. Mm-hmm. He wants to work outside the system and doesn't want to be bound by any of its limitations, but she values order and control. Um, so I think of them as two different at being, being at two different ends of the evil spectrum, which sometimes leads them to their actions to align, but doesn't mean it's motivated by the same desires. I, I think well, that's the best analysis of the two of them. Like as far as using like D and D terms that I've heard, I know I, I legit, I really like that actually. How many D and D analyses have you heard? <laughs> Very few in my life, to be completely honest. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's actually more along my line of thinking because um, as we see in Deathly Hallows, the the weirdest part to me about how Umbridge operates within the ministry in Deathly Hallows is I feel if you, if you asked her at that point if she was working for Voldemort, she would say no, even though she knows, I'm pretty sure she knows what's going on, but I think she would say no because as you're saying, Veronica, Voldemort is is out working outside of the the law, which she doesn't approve mm-hmm. of, um, and she never gets branded with a dark mark. She never seems to pursue that. She's just happy because she's at the top of the food chain, or at least she thinks she is. Um, so she's not looking for yeah. She's not looking for that ultimate control like Voldemort is out in you know over everything. She's looking for it in the controlled law system she still in her bizarre way thinks she's following the law weird short little person (laughs) toad-faced woman (laughs) and that's nothing against you Kristen, because you are lovably short so yeah thanks guys (laughs) (laughs) nice save there i won't be a stormtrooper either There goes my life ambition of working at Disney. <laughs> well, you could be like a dwarf or something. I guess. Great. I'll, be, awesome. I'll be an Ewok. <laughs> Ewoks are lovable and adorable. Okay. Speaking of lovable and adorable, our next comment is from Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw. 
That's a good segue, right? Yep. So smooth. <laughs> yeah. It says, I don't think Umbridge was working directly for Voldemort. Big surprise. She <laughs> likes the rules to be followed, and she likes to be in charge. When that overlaps with Voldemort's message, she probably doesn't have a problem working indirectly for him. But in this case, I don't think so. If she was, it would put her, Fudge, and the Ministry in a really bad position, which does, of course, end up happening at the end of the book. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if she worked indirectly for Voldemort. As Kat pointed out, thank you. There are a few too many coincidences regarding the Ministry and Voldemort, such as McNair. I think that someone at the Ministry, not Fudge, but another important Ministry person, suggested that she fire Trelawney over Hagrid because it could help Voldemort's cause. Maybe even Lucius, I like that that is spelled luscious. <laughs> Maybe even Lucius made the suggestion, we know his name still holds power in the Wizarding World. I also think that Umbridge is more scared. If he were fired, meaning Hagrid, he could easily overtake her physically. She probably suspects that he is a half-breed. Firing Trelawney is probably a mixture of advice from a trusted ministry peer and the fear of firing Hagrid. On a side note, Jason Isaacs is very luscious. As Lucius. <laughs> I, and as himself. See, I don't... Yes, I was going to say, more as himself, personally. But yes, I would agree. I really like this point at the end about um, maybe maybe Lucius being involved because it wouldn't be the first time that he has involved himself in school affairs. Although, was he sacked from the, like, school council at the end of the last... I don't remember. Um, but he gets Buckbeak executed, right? Yeah, he's he's been mm-hmm. sacked from the... At the school board, but he's still working at the ministry mm-hmm. because he don't he he donates to charitable causes. So yeah, he seems I like think... the kind of person she would be friends with. Couldn't you yeah. see them like going bowling together? <laughs> <laughs> she <the> sure, <laughs> of course. Yeah. W- wizard bowling. Wizard bowling. <laughs> well, and I, I don't remember where I read it. I feel like that was possibly stated by rolling somewhere i'm not sure listeners if you can find it or if ladies if you can remember this i i kind of feel like there was something stated that umbridge has something in line with her you know prejudice against werewolves and half-breeds etc etc i feel like she also had something against seers because that's a rare gift that's kind of unusual um and something that the wizarding world seems to kind of look at both with awe and fear, depending on how good the seer is anyway. Um, so I don't know if that had something to do with it, too, if there's actually a prejudice there on Umbridge's part, because most of these comments are suggesting that she just did it for tactical reasons, um, which I can totally see, because Trelawney is kind of a weak link to fire. Like, she's not she's not going... Like, I feel like going going toward to Hagrid and firing him first is a big would cause a big hullabaloo compared to Trelawney. Hullabaloo. hullabaloo. Do you think she's really fearful of Hagrid? Cuz he could step on her probably. Possibly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um I don't think so. But... I don't uh, yeah, I don't think so cuz she, she when yeah. she encounters Hagrid, she certainly dominates those conversations. Exactly. Yeah. So I kind of disagree with that part of the comment. Yeah, he's... He... Think of him as, like, an oaf, like, subhuman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aww. Sad, I know. Sad We're for Hagrid. Hagrid. Yeah, well, yeah. He'll get over it. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, our last comment here comes from Feathersickle7662. It says, 
I think that Trelawney was targeted by Professor Umbridge solely based on the fact that she believes her to be a fraud and therefore not qualified to teach. Now, some may argue that this is indeed true, but she was the one who made the prophecy regarding Harry and Voldemort, and she also predicted Pettigrew's return. She may not have known it, but she did indeed give two very true prophecies. I don't believe for a minute that Umbridge was involved with Voldemort in any way, unless she had indeed been imperused. Imperioused, I think, was was that what they were going for? Imperiused, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, her ego is far too big to have a master she would try and overstep her bounds and voldemort would kill her on the spot she obviously targeted hagrid because one he has a half breed and two because she knows that him and dumbledore trust each other and are close so pretty much everything you said a minute ago i can i backtrack a second of course because i found proof that Dolores and Luci- Lucius are like in cahoots. Kind Ooh, of. let's hear. Okay. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you found proof that they were bowling. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are pictures on the, the internet. P- the paparazzi <laughs> picture didn't happen. First of all, <laughs> let me note that there is a lot more fan fiction about Dolores and Lucius than I anticipated <laughs> when I first googled this. <laughs> but leaving that aside, in um, Order of the Phoenix, she is yelling at Snape and tells him he's. On probation and says you are being deliberately unhelpful i expected better lucius malfoy always speaks most highly of you now get out of my office Ooh, that's right i forgot about that moment yeah anyway sorry it's just no. adding more to that theory about lucius but anyway that's good well, i like that makes, that makes sense since he's around the ministry all the time right. um, so. and they do have egos to match yes so that, that makes sense as feather sickle says with the egos yeah, I think I think as far as the the question goes, well, I do think there, I, I I do think there's still something there, Cat, especially with the stuff with McNair, like we had discussed yes. a few episodes ago. Because while narratively, I think McNair is there so that Hagrid recognizes him, I think that it's also too much of a coincidence with the role McNair plays between the Ministry and the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, but I think in. In general, the Order of the Phoenix really pushes the idea that in her attempt and in her joint attempt with Fudge to ignore Voldemort, she helps Voldemort's cause more. She doesn't mean to, but that's what makes her so foolish and why we hate her so much. Right. Yeah, we do hate Umbridge. That's true. I know that had nothing to do with what you just said. <laughs> the, the understatement of the year. We we hate Umbridge. <laughs> <laughs> we do. So, but um, that's that. That is the um, recap for this week. Speaking of fan fiction, have you all ever read the book Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell? Totally. Yep. I, you know, I started it when I was working at the bookstore, but I never got a chance to finish it, actually. Oh, bummer. Oh, was, man. I really enjoyed what I read. It's a cute book. Yeah. I mean, it's a great book, um, especially if you're a fangirl like myself, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast and the Even people who Michael. are listening. I am a fangirl. Yes, yes no you question. are. No <laughs> you, doubt you, about it. You saw me at LeakyCon. You saw me dressing oh, up yes. every day. I'm, I'm a fangirl. <laughs> well, then you guys should really check out this book because it's about a fangirl who's just starting her first year in college, and I don't know if you guys, but it really... Related to me being a fangirl and then also starting college with 
fresh new people and new experiences and not always fitting in. I don't know if you guys were the same way or not. I I related to it like from a fangirl point of view, obviously, not so much from the college part. But if everybody out there wants to download this for free, you can do that because after all, Audible is the absolute best place for all your audio downloading needs. And right now, Audible has a really great special offer for our U.S. and Canadian listeners. You can visit our unique link created specifically just for you. That's right, everyone listening right now. And you'll get a free audio download like today, right now. Uh, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash open. You can also download Fangirl uh, in using Audible's listener program. Basically, how that works is you purchase book credit at a very low monthly rate. And you can use those book credits at any time for any product that Audible offers. And with over 150,000 titles to choose from, you have a lot of options. Head over to audiblepodcast.com slash open and start downloading directly to your computer for easy listening on burn CDs, MP3 players, even your iPad, iPhones, or Androids. So again, the website made just for you is audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com slash open, O-P-E-N. So visit audiblepodcast.com slash open for your free download today. As we move forward with the episode, we go into Chapter 27 of Order of the Phoenix. Chapter 27. Run! The centaur and the sneak. The school is buzzing with the appointment of the new divination professor, Ferenz the centaur, whose classes take a notably different approach to the subject than Professor Trelawney's lessons. Ferenz also bears a warning for Hagrid, which only falls on deaf ears. Meanwhile, the DA regroups with new member Seamus Finnegan joining the ranks, but no sooner do the lessons on Patronuses begin than Umbridge and her inquisitorial squad crash the party. Thanks to a warning from Dobby, most of the DA make a hasty retreat, but Harry is caught and taken to Dumbledore's office, where an assortment of ministry members are prepared to prosecute him based on testimony by the, quote, sneak, Marietta Edgecombe, whose treachery is literally written all over her face, thanks to Hermione. After a set of calculated moves by present members of the Order, Dumbledore takes the blame and takes flight, leaving Harry bewildered and Hogwarts at the mercy of Dolores Umbridge. So this chapter is kind of basically split into two parts. It's the divination section with Ferenz and the disaster of the DA being broken up by Umbridge. And we start with Ferenz and his lesson, which has quite a few interesting points to it. But actually, before we even get to his lesson, two characters I just want to point out who make quite a substantial appearance in these first few pages are Lavender Brown and Parvati Patil. Um, and I point them out because they, these two characters up till this point have been kind of sideline characters, even at the in the Yule Ball sequence, um, which I just recently reread. Parvati is kind of outed from that chapter pretty quickly um, when she's not necessary anymore. So I just wanted to just throw out there, since we know that Rowling is listening to the show, if you ever feel the desire to tell us the full story of Lavender Brown and Parvati Patel, please feel free to record that for for Pottermore, because I'm sure we would love to read it. I don't know. I've just, I personally have been very curious about these two characters. Both of know. them together? Yeah, because they both kind of have the same level of, like, all they like is divination, and that's all we... And one of them likes Ron. 
That's so weird. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think it's also because I've been, I don't know about you guys, but I was particularly struck in the Deathly Hallows film when Lavender Brown died. Oh. <laughs> that was such a shock for me. Um, that was she, sad. Yeah, it was sad because it's it. She's a character that we only meet once in the films. Mm-hmm. Um, then she's and then she's dead. And and you know, knowing a little more about her in the book, it does make it kind of sad, especially because she's her her death is not confirmed in Deathly Hallows whether she is alive or not. Um, but I just thought I'd throw that out there because again, these two characters finally appear. Unfortunately, they don't really have much to contribute aside from their views on divination but it does make yes they they do there's a lot of shade thrown by these two but it does contribute to a lot of humor um in this lesson which takes place in classroom 11 a whole new section of hogwarts that we haven't really spent time in and not only is classroom 11 kind of new to us it's also dumbledore has managed to mimic the outdoors in this classroom almost perfectly oh you think it's dumbledore I, think it was, I thought it was Ferenz. Oh, you know, it was funny because I thought that too, but actually Ferenz does say Professor Dumbledore, Dumbledore. has kindly arranged mm-hmm. this classroom for us. Yeah. No, but, 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 oh, wait. <laughs> but I was going to say maybe he just, like, gave him the classroom, but then... Got him the room. No. But, no. Mm, never mind. Okay. But even so... What How cool ma- of a room. Right? I want this room. <laughs> what what is ma- it? What magic is this? What magic is this? <laughs> you can't just make the outdoors inside. I swear that has to defy Gamp's law. <laughs> the Great Hall, the ceiling is always mimicking the outdoors. And the swamp. True. Yeah. Friend George, the swamp. The swamp. Mm-hmm. That's true. But there there are like pretty common. There are trees and and like not only unlike the Great Hall where the sky is a reflection of the sky outside, this sky Friends can do whatever he wants with it. It's kind of like a planetarium, except better. Yeah. Oh, that would be <laughs> way better. the coolest planetarium ever. It's just pretty pretty astonishing magic going on here. I, I, I'm really impressed. I wish I'd like to know more about how that works. I, it's, it's always good that you can, that Rowling can brush off any complicated magic by saying, Dumbledore did it. Don't. Right. <laughs> right. Don't even Do you worry. doubt the incredible power of Dumbledore? <laughs> that's that's like, Put the book down right now. Go that's like when else. that's like when Hermione tells us a fact about Hogwarts. We're like, oh yeah, that's that's true <laughs> and legit. Be, right. Yes, it must be true. Right. Um, and of course, uh, as Ferenz begins his lesson, uh, the students are pretty astonishingly ill-learned on centaurs and their culture because dean yeah. thomas says what Breed quote, them. <laughs> says the most offensive thing you could possibly ask he says uh, well first of all it doesn't even start with that it starts with lavender who when friend says that he's been banished from his herd the narration lavender says herd said Lavender in a confused voice, and Harry knew she was thinking of cows. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> magic, he knew. Cows. Cows. She's he was using thinking. the and C to read And then, of course, Dean follows it up by asking, Did Hagrid breed you like the Thestrals? asked Dean eagerly. Friends yeah. turned his head very slowly to face Dean, who seemed to realize at once that he had said something very offensive. Uh, I didn't, I meant, sorry. <laughs> he finished in a hushed voice. <laughs> so, uh, 
I thought it would be a good opportunity to just flip open the, the my copy of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And can I comment just for a moment that, um, and I don't want this to come out racist, but that came from like one of the only black characters in this book. <laughs> I'm just saying. Interesting point. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mull over. I want to mull over that. Actually, okay, you mull over <laughs> that. I'm gonna mull. I let's come back to that. But okay. the the um the history of centaurs, um, as recorded by Newt Scamander in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, says that uh, they are classified by the Ministry of Magic with uh, by their system with four X's. And in a note, uh, Scamander says the centaur is given. A quadruple X classification, not because it is unduly aggressive, but because it should be treated with great respect. The same applies to mer people and unicorns. And he writes, the centaur has a human head, torso, and arms joined to a horse's body, which may be any of several colors. Being intelligent and capable of speech, it should not, strictly speaking, be termed a beast. But by its own request, it has been classified as such by the Ministry of Magic. The centaur is forest-dwelling. Centaurs are believed to have originated in Greece, though there are now centaur communities in many parts of Europe. Wizarding authorities in each of the countries where centaurs are found have allocated areas where the centaurs will not be troubled by muggles. However, centaurs stand in little need of wizard protection, having their own means of hiding from humans. The ways of the centaur are shrouded in mystery. They are, generally speaking, as mistrustful of wizards as they are of muggles, and indeed seem to make little differentiation between us. They live in herds ranging in size from 10 to 50 members. They are reputed to be well-versed in magical healing, divination, archery, and astronomy. So there you go, Dean Thomas. All you had to do was pick up your copy of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and you wouldn't have asked such stupid questions. Nobody reads in these books except Hermione. (laughs) We know that. (laughs) But keeping in mind some of what we have just learned about centaurs, uh, Ferenz goes on to talk about his version of divination and centaurs' version of divination. And what's interesting in how he discusses divination is that unlike Trelawney who kind of talks about what you'll be having for breakfast tomorrow and whether or not it will kill you. (laughs) Ferenc says that the future essentially is very malleable and full of different paths and is not interested in pinpointing very specific people unless they are of great importance to a greater cause. So I just wanted to kind of discuss that for a little bit and how that reflects that those ideas that Ferenc is throwing out perhaps reflect on not only this book, but perhaps Rowling's ideas of fate and destiny. Um, Because there's a lot of big questions that she poses about that. Especially in this book with, you know, the ending. Mm -hmm, The prophecy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what's, what's always been interesting to me with Dumbledore's explanation of the prophecy is that Harry has a very long conversation with him about why he can't defy the prophecy. And Dumbledore says that he actually does have the option to not do what the prophecy says. And Dumbledore suggests that prophecies are actually malleable. So what are our feelings on fate and destiny, perhaps? Maybe we can get a little personal with it. Go wild, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't, I don't have specific thoughts on my own beliefs about fate and destiny just yet, but I do think it's also interesting that the prophecy itself 
by acting on it, Voldemort determines it because it could have been Neville Longbottom who was um, the marked one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I love this quote from this chapter, which is his priority did not seem to be to teach them what he knew, but rather to impress upon them that nothing, not even Centaur's knowledge, was foolproof, which is such an interesting view of divination, given what we've seen of it so far. Yeah. Yeah, this is so drastically different from... And I, in a way, I... Because I guess with... Personally, I've, I've, I've actually been to somebody who told told me my future to some degree what i was asking her about and uh my parents kind of warned me for like beforehand they were like you know we know what good fortune tellers are like just if you know you'll know when she's bsing you mm-hmm. and there were things she was telling me about myself that she could not have gleaned from me from the things i was saying to her um and personally i choose to believe what she was saying was had some weight to it but at the same time she did she did tell me at the beginning there are various paths that people's lives can take and that just because i tell you these things these are possibilities but there are other possibilities depending on the choices you make which i think is very in line with what forens is saying um so which is kind of more of what i prescribe to and really the whole overall message of the entire series as a whole it's your choices mm-hmm. choice yeah. over destiny yeah yeah I suppose. Mm-hmm. This is just an interesting thing to put in when you do have objects like prophecies that supposedly do definitively he's, tell you things. Yeah, and I mean, he's right, though. Like, the future is m- malleable. Malleable. <laughs> <laughs> I can normally say that word. I don't know. Something about the day. Um, not today. Yeah, not today. Um, I mean, but he is right because in the end, Harry has that choice. There are several different paths that he could take. So, And I love this idea in fiction generally, um, I find it like really maddening, but in a good way, that without knowing about the prophecy, the prophecy wouldn't come true. And I think that they're, they confirm at the end that there are a lot of unfulfilled prophecies in the Hall of Mysteries. I think that's really interesting. Um, like this happens in Macbeth. It's like, would Macbeth have killed the king if he knew that he was supposed to kill the king? Like, I, who knows? It drives me insane. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, does the does the tree falling in the forest does it make a noise also drive you insane? No, that one I'm I'm good with. Oh, okay, because of physics. Oh, right, (laughs) physics. Right. Good answer. That makes sense. And in addition to these very lofty ideas about fate and destiny, uh, Ferenz also offhandedly throws out some more stuff about Mars. And it kind of Mars, Mars comes back. <laughs> the return of Mars from, from Sorcerer's Stone. And as Ferenz puts it, in the past decade, the indications have been that wizard kind is living through nothing more than a brief calm between two wars. Mars, bringer of battle, shines brightly above us, suggesting that the fight must break out soon. So what's interesting to me about that as far as Sorcerer's Stone goes is that we actually didn't hear that from Ferenz. We heard it from the other two centaurs that Harry encountered. And they didn't say why they were saying Mars is bright tonight. They just kept saying it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought it was interesting because they did pointedly say it around Harry Mm -hmm. and Hermione and Ron. Do centaurs, even though centaurs claim that they have no interest in pitiful humans... Is that true? No, I mean, I think 
the quote that Veronica read proves that is the fact that his priority is not to, you know, teach them, but to impress them. So clearly he cares at least what they think about him a little bit. Well, and what we've heard from Ferenz is that he's kind of, he's like a Dobby in this situation where he's an odd one out in his community. But Dobby's amazing. Oh yeah. And Ferenz Mm. is amazing too. But what I'm wondering is if the other centaurs actually do have an interest in humans to some degree. Hmm. Well, definitely not Bane. No. <laughs> but I be- isn't Bane one of the ones who said Mars is bright tonight in Sorcerer's Stone? I don't have my copy. Yes. Potentially. So. They, both, mm-hmm. they keep saying it. Everybody that they run into says it, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yeah. the official centaur greeting of that night. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is no coincidence considering that Voldemort is drinking unicorn blood that same evening. Yeah. You know, Mars also appears in the fourth book, which I obsessively researched today because I was like, I swear I've heard seen this in another place. Really? Uh, What's it say? Yeah, it's during a divination lesson. Um, and Trelawney says, today, however, will be an excellent opportunity to examine the effects of Mars, for he is placed most interestingly at the present time. Um, and I'm trying to find what she says. Oh, it's like there's a fascinating angle Mars is making to Neptune. And it never says what exactly the lesson is about, but... You know, given what happens at the end of that book, I feel like there's huh. this, you know, it's like a very intentional hint. I wonder I wonder if Mars actually has some sort of, like, war, death, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, connotation. Mm-hmm. Like, if that's a real thing. And it is. Oh, okay, great. I mean, I figured it was, because, you know, it's Joe, so. Yeah, I think I think it's the idea that because it's red, like blood. Oh, mm-hmm. is that it? Yeah, that's part, yeah. that's part of it. There's very other subtle, elements too, very but... subtle. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the Roman name for the god of war or something? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, I believe mm-hmm. so. I know very little about Roman things. I that's like the extent of my knowledge. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the bottom of the well. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we've seen, we it's nice to have things like that come back, as we always marvel at. Rolling is. Quite impressive at how she brings things that we really didn't think had much bearing or maybe were things we that were one-off mentions, and we get those things back far down in the series. Yeah, um, she's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, Veronica Roth would know. Oh, God. <laughs> cool name. <laughs> but, well, and actually, Veronica, before we go on, I, I do always, um, <clears throat> excuse me, like to ask the authors that we have on the show kind of about like their writing style versus Rowling's writing style and how you plan out your own books or how you approach larger plots like these when you know you're doing a multi-book series. Well, I think the answer to that is that she plans things meticulously and I do not plan things barely at all or I'm just starting to learn how to do that. Um, and it gets me into really deep trouble. So I, um, (laughs) I admire her a lot uh, and have, I think part of the reason I've reread the book so many times is, you know, first of all, because I love them, but second, because they're so like intricate and complex and thing, like you said, things that you didn't think would come back always do. And every detail is so carefully selected. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what I'm saying is I'm still learning from her um, and a lot of authors, obviously, but yeah, I'm kind of like a hurl spaghetti at the wall and hope that something sticks kind of person, which is sometimes works and often makes me just swear 
And then I do that. That's terrible. (laughs) Well, to your credit, I think I think you're doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Every I think every writer has this like incredible drive to improve and not to think about if they've done well. Like I, the most people I know are super self-deprecating and just like I fail all the time. Well, and even in that respect, Rowling has Rowling often gets down on herself about the Potter series and things that she would like to go back and change. And I know she is especially critical of Order of the Phoenix. Um, so for certain, for various reasons, but but it's the best book. It's the best. Sorry, it's up there. Sure, it is. <laughs> Veronica, what's what's your favorite Potter book? Mine is the Half Blood Prince. Oh, right. oh, yay! Okay. Good choice, Prince lover. Yeah, I mean, I love the exploration of the villains. I think that's kind of... Oh. The I villains, princes right. are so rare. Oh, that's lovely. It's. I think that's, that is probably my second favorite book. It's my second favorite, yeah. Prisoner is my favorite. Well, duh. We knew that. Oh, you and everybody else. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to sacrifice it just because everybody else likes it. I'm no hipster. <laughs> but as we move on to the second portion of of this chapter uh we have another dumbledore's army lesson probably even though it's cut short it is a fantastic lesson because it does reveal a lot of things about particular characters because this is the patronus lesson well and you know what i noticed too this is only one of two that we see in the whole book right yeah i think there's a third there's another one that's mentioned um they're all like montage yeah. Right. Right. And so I was thinking about it. This is one part of the film that they do super well. Oh, I is love the Dumbledore's part. army meetings. They like actually do them really like the well, justice that they deserve. Like Veronica said, the book almost portrays them in montage form. Yeah. And that's all that's like that's that that's a very easy thing to do. Yeah, but film. still, I mean, it would have been very easy to just make it a short little thing, but like they actually mm-hmm. Like they show like all the animals, right? Like, they, do, I, I think they do the so cool. Yeah, they do them really well. I know oh, you yeah, hate. Uh, I know you hate the movie, but you want well, to actually, no credit to the movie at all. Is what no, I, 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 I like, I like, <laughs> I, I don't like Order of the Phoenix. It's not my least favorite. It's it Goblet is my least favorite. But high five, brother. <laughs> but I will say that the DA lessons are actually the strongest points of the Order film because they actually take the time to develop relationships between the characters, especially the new characters or the characters that don't get a lot of screen time. So, Mm -hmm. but we'll get to that. I have so many opinions on the movie. We'll get to the movie. Soon. Um, Very soon. Very soon. But, uh, and actually the movie is a little helpful in this situation because there's a few Patronuses that actually get revealed in this chapter, including um, Cho Chang's, which actually, when I was thinking about it, is so perfectly fitting and yeah. in a way kind of hilarious. Her Maybe. her patron her patronus is a swan. Um she which I, I looked up all of the kind of general symbolism for animals, these particular animals that are brought up. And the main ones that came up for a swan were graceful, moody, committed, very um very related to love and unity. Mm-hmm. Um I was just thinking it was hilarious because swans are jerks. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> They're pretty, but if you if you provoke mm-hmm. them, they will come after you. They're um, moody. Perfect, perfect matchup. Uh, mm-hmm. We also we don't get Seamus Finnegan's Patronus because he can't quite do it yet, 
And his is mentioned in Deathly Hallows. Uh, his is a fox, which is often associated with cunning, adaptability, and wisdom, which I thought was... Does that fit? Hmm. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Seamus? I mean, the one who keeps blowing things up, he's super yeah. wise. <laughs> so wise in the art of magic. Yeah, he... I mean... Mm-hmm. Not as often as in the movies, but yeah. I think he definitely still blows stuff up. Yeah. No, he has like one <laughs> instance where he blows things up in the book. Like it's once. It's I a bet running... there's more. Somebody count. Somebody. <laughs> Somebody count. Not us. I mean a listener. Somebody count. I don't know. I think Veronica went after that Mars reference. I think she could find the other place. She probably could. That's true. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say she's a super Googler. (laughs) Er Ernie McMillan, whose Patronus is also not shown, but he obviously learns it in this class, which we will see in Deathly Hallows. His is a boar, um, which is uh, reflective of uh, solitary, protective, strong, and stubborn nature. Which makes Um, sense for Ernie. That would fit pretty good. Luna Lovegoods, a hare, which uh, she so famously recreated, actually... Um, that is her um, corsage that she wears in the Half Blood Prince film. It's a hair jumping through loops. She made it too herself. I didn't know that. God, I love Ivana. <laughs> the That's the effort, cool. the sheer effort, and fittingly, a hair is representative of creativity, uh, artistic, uh, uh, artistic ability, swiftness. But it, uh, hairs are also reflective of being unreliable. Mm-hmm. Um. And they are also interestingly interestingly connected in a more literal sense to the population of snowy owls because snowy owls eat hares. Aww. <laughs> and that's, when, a, that's a fun little connection between her and Harry, huh? I, yeah. I, I thought that was interesting because actually snowy owl populations decrease when there are not um, as many hares, which I can't imagine that happens often because I'm sure hares procreate like rabbits, but... <laughs> ha ha ha, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, pun was intended. <laughs> yes, it was. But uh, I thought that was an inter- it doesn't really seem to fit their I don't know if that fits their relationship. Can somebody stretch that to fit Harry and Luna's relationship? No, it's just a fun <laughs> little silly thing. It just ties in well. Mhm. Uh Ginny Weasley's uh Patronus which we never I don't believe actually see in the books, but it is confirmed is a horse which is reflective of majesty, majesticness, freedom and a very nomadic nature. Mm-hmm. Um, moving from place to place, which I thought was funny with in tandem with our conversation last week about how many people Ginny has dated. Oh, what? <laughs> She's definitely free. Just wondering if that's the connection. The connection was meant to be made. I'm sure that's exactly what Joe meant. I'm sure it is. If Noah was here, I figured that's how he would interpret oh, it. That's, he would. That's true. He would. Uh, Ron Weasley's is a Jack Russell Terrier. Which is which I thought was interesting to be so specific about the breed um, compared to every everybody else's Patronuses. Um, Jack Russell Terriers are, of course, energetic, but also very stubborn and very easily bored unless you keep them occupied, which I thought was pretty fitting for Ron. Yeah. Now, and then this is the this is the interesting one. Hermione Granger. Hers is an otter. Which is reflective of a of a sense of curiosity, which definitely fits Hermione. But otters are primarily associated with playfulness. Oh, psych! <laughs> Wrong, incorrect. Try no, again. No, come on. No, like you, you know, we don't know Hermione like after school or. Sure, we do. 
How? She goes on vacation to places like Paris and goes and does like goes to the historical sites and all she wants to do is research, research, research. She's Knowledge no, I'm saying game. like after she graduates Hogwarts, we don't know what she is as like, you know, hanging out with Ron in in the evenings. Like, you know what I mean? Like maybe she's fun and okay. playful. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Okay. It's what us Ravenclaws do? Yeah, I she just... does have kind of like dork humor. Yeah, like right. jokes that other people don't find are funny, but that doesn't mean that they're not playful. Right. This is a stretch. I mean, she's always like, she's always like, stop joking around. Let's get serious. <laughs> you know. And speaking of that, um, I'm just going to cut in on you here. Um, remember when J.K. Rowling um, talked about her Patronus like which, last month, which is mm-hmm. a Pine Martin. Yeah. Yep. And, well, I'm going to read some facts because we wrote an article about it on MuggleNet. It says that um, some fun and interesting facts about this revelation. Pine Martins belong to the um, something family, which also includes otters, which is Hermione's. Ah, the something family. Badgers, which is a symbol (laughs) of Hufflepuff House, and weasels from the name Weasley, of course. And um, in his dark materials, Lyra's daemon, demon, however you say it, is um, a Pine Martin. So there you go. And Pine, Mar- Pine Martins also have a fondness for jam and peanut butter sandwiches. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> they're well, so and- cute. You should Google them. Aww. Yeah, they're really adorable. <laughs> well, and and uh, Rowling has stated that she gave Hermione the otter mainly because otters are actually her favorite animal. Um, and she she always says that she associates strongest with Hermione. Oh my god. It had it had been a while since I looked at a picture of a pine martin. They really are adorable. <laughs> They're so cute. When I heard about it, I was like, gotta Google it right now. It's and like I fell a, in love. It's like a fluffy, like weasel fox looking thing. It's so cute. I want one. It's probably illegal, but I want one. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have one. Yeah, Haggard'll get you one. Maybe cool. it'll be your Patronus. Because Maybe. as we mentioned earlier. Everybody is looking forward to there will be a Patronus test yes. um, coming up in the new chapters of Order of the Phoenix. She hinted about it, right? Yes, she did. Yeah. She I can't wait for that. She gave. She dropped that on Twitter because somebody was like, what's my, I really wish I had a, you had a quiz for that. And she was like, oh, you just wait. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. She's cheeky like that. Are you, um, are you on Pottermore, Veronica? I have an account buried deep, deep in my inbox like the account info because okay. i just really need to know my official house which i already knew but then you know um but it confirmed it you got hufflepuff yeah so i created it for that but then i lost the info oh whoops yeah so i'll i'll find it someday because veronica, now, I, now there... I need my patronus <laughs> right, right is there veronica is there like an official like written by you test to sort people into the into the different factions from your stories is that a thing no i mean there is there are a couple like around one was created by the movie people and one was by the publisher but none were written by me um i the reason is because it's uh, supposed to be a decision so Mm -hmm. that's true but i don't yeah i don't know no no that's a valid point that it's a decision not a yeah i agree not a sorting so to say have you been asked by because I, I actually um I had the pleasure of hanging out with your friend Marie Lou for a day when Yay, I was Yay Marie! Her. Oh my god, I, I love her. Yes. So, and uh she um 
we she and I talked about uh, like how authors these days are asked to put in so much based on what Rowling has done with Harry Potter to put in so much extra effort and time and extra work into the world that they created and making things that perhaps they coming out with works that they didn't even perhaps intend to put out after their main series is over. Has that been something that you get asked by, by like fans and your publishers all the time to just make more of this world that you have? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's become fairly standard. Um, and it's all right, except that some people overwrite, you know, they write too much and they end up cutting a lot. And then for them, you know, it's just a matter of like extracting a deleted scene or expanding on something that they put in, but then had to take out. But I underwrite. So every draft is really short and then I have to expand it. So I have no extra material. So I have to create it all. Um, and, you know, I just don't do a whole lot of like planning as noted before so i always have to like dig into the books and research to make sure that what i'm creating isn't contradicting something i already said and i don't have any documents to like help me so (laughs) next time i write a series i'm going to create some organized documents (laughs) i bet uh, you you could probably call joe i'm sure she'd help you i wonder how she does it i really do like i want to know what the folders look like the notebooks right i was gonna say to be if if she is to be believed there's just like scattered like college lined paper all over the place with coffee stains everywhere like i don't know if i don't know if rolling's gonna be much help for you <laughs> she was working in the days before excel spreadsheets so <laughs> oh man still i don't care i would sit there for 20 years if that's how long it took me to go through that stuff <laughs> well and saying. And speaking of that, and I won't go too far into it because I believe we've discussed it a lot on the show already. But listeners, make sure and check out if you have if you haven't checked into your Pottermore account lately, head over there and read the amazing little section about Patronuses. There is a lot of hidden information in there, mm-hmm. including the fact that Rowling contradicted herself about how Patronuses work in the Wonder Book of Spells game, and she proceeded to fix it on Pottermore. Um, there's a lot going on with Patronuses that's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about that spell. It is personally one of my favorite spells, and I'm very upset that Harry didn't use it to kill Voldemort at the very end of the book. But we'll get to that oh. later. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that so much. I wish we could debate this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did you want that, too? Is that what you wanted? No, no, hence the reason it's a debate. I think it's awesome that he uses Expelliarmus, because it's like... I don't know. It's like a, a gesture of mercy that becomes a gesture of strength, which I just think is awesome. Oh, that's sweet. That's good wording. You mm-hmm. you must write books for a living. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, this Patronus lesson does have to come to an end, and a bit early, because Dobby runs in and warns the group uh, very in a very difficult manner, because he's been told he's not supposed to. Um, that Umbridge is on her way. And the one interesting thing I wanted to point out about this is that as they are escaping, Harry scoops Dobby up and tells and gives Dobby an order. And Dobby seems to follow what Harry says, which is don't tell Umbridge that you told us and don't hurt yourself. Um, this kind of goes back into our discussion about how self magic and how it works, because is, am I right in saying this is the first time that Dobby takes a direct order from Harry and follows it? Um, is this the first time that happens? Uh, I think no. I don't think so. I can't remember. Isn't there something in Goblet? I feel like there is. I feel like there's something around the whole um, 
that thing like when um, they're in the kitchen the gillyweed yeah something mm-hmm. right well the gillyweed dobby just shows up and does it for him yeah and he right, takes but, that order from moody right but like i feel like dobby or no there's definitely something and what but, about when they're in the kitchens with winky maybe something don't they like, talk about something yeah but but i don't think that dobby is obeying harry i think that no. dobby is choosing to listen to listen harry to because him. he mm-hmm. respects him Oh, is what it comes yeah. down to. Because he's a free elf. Because he admires Harry Potter so right. much. Mm-hmm. I just think that's, just, as far as we've discussed with health, uh, house elf magic before, that's pretty amazing that it overrides Umbridge's command um, well, for Dobby. I mean, Dobby's, you know, he's a weird one since he's a free elf, mm-hmm. so he can choose mm-hmm. to listen to whoever he wants. However, I think that because Umbridge is the High Inquisitor of Hogwarts, she's technically... Dobby's boss. However, since Dobby is quote unquote free, he can listen to whoever he wants and he respects Harry more than he does Umbridge. So I think that's why he chooses to listen to him and not her. And he has just learned to hurt himself after saying something. So I think right. he, you know, he didn't have to exactly listen to Umbridge or whatever. So he went and told them and then he just had to hurt himself because that's what he's been trained to do. I think that's the saddest part of the mm. whole house elf thing is watching Dobby, like even mm. though he craves freedom and gets it, like being mm. unable to break the behavioral patterns that were set by his like yep. long time of servitude. It's so sad. It's so sad. Oh, which, one second to learn it years to unlearn, which goes back to a discussion we had before about, Again, how house elf magic works and whether Hermione is right in her kind of platform about that it's actually because most wizards seem to believe that that's just inherently their magic and what they do, whereas Hermione believes that it's brainwashing. So kind of it sounds like we're on the side that it is, in fact, brainwashing at this point. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some sort of probably uh, generational thing where it's, you know, like creatures family they've been doing it for so many generations whatever you know it's it 10% the your family and 90% environment brainwashing is what i would say you know i go with that yeah cuz it's just been that's been something that's been hotly debated in including how hermione approaches um her house elf rights campaign right um, cuz it's actually come under more criticism than i've heard it ever heard it come under on our time on Alohomora. Um mm-hmm. But think about it, listeners. Hermione might actually be on the right track. Um, as we get taken to Dumbledore's office, a uh, nice little, again, mentioning things that haven't been mentioned in a while, Willie Wittershins is brought up. <laughs> 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 and I, this, I guess, just went completely over my head back in the day, but Willie Wittershins is the individual covered in bandages at the Hogshead who was also... Uh, muggle baiting and blowing up toilets as arthur weasley mentions but he is actually there you go cat here's somebody who is a confirmed um person who is working for for the ministry undercover who should not be no Um, but he wasn't okay but no he's just a snitch yeah but that's still he's he's an igor karkaroff yeah but he's not like he's not a mcnair no but it's still bad he's not like an official (laughs) ministry employee Sure. I mean, hasn't everybody snitched on somebody in their life? Well, no. <laughs> funny you should mention that because speaking of snitches, Marietta Edgecombe. <laughs> I did not do that on purpose. That was great. <laughs> great segue. 
was great. <laughs> Who wrote the galloping gargoyles here? In- I did because I love that when he um, when Fudge sees her forehead, he's like, "Oh, well." Then you go galloping gargoyles. <laughs> like, just and I was laughing so hard. I was like, "Oh, I have to say that at least once." <laughs> <laughs> galloping gargoyles. Why is that so on a funny. T-shirt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god. He. Oh god. I just got the best picture of him. Like. Wearing that shirt, like <laughs> his giant belly, like I don't know, it's just really funny. We do uh, love wizard sayings on yeah, this show. We do. Um, That's so not funny. my favorite wizard swear, though. Just no, no. But I think unicorn turd is my favorite one. <laughs> Where was that one? So that's. Have you seen the Potter Puppet Pals wizard swears YouTube video? No, oh, I haven't no. seen that one. Although I have seen some of those. Okay, you should watch that one because it's pretty epic. I also like um, Voldemort's nipple. That's a good one, too. <laughs> I used to be able to... <laughs> I used to remember the whole long bleeped out swear that... Dumb, like, the, the big swear that Dumbledore does at the end. I used wow. to remember, like, all the like the, the beeps and the... Mickey Mouse! And soup! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, my personal favorite from the book, though, is the unfinished one by Ron and Deathly Hallows with Merlin's saggy left. Oh, right. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. Marietta, Marietta Edgecombe. She's, right. The snitch. She, yep. She's the, uh, she's the new... Um, oh, who's the other girl who has acne? Who terrible acne at school? Uh, oh yes, Eleanor. Uh, Eloise El- Eloise Midgen. Eloise Midgen. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Wow, we are bad fans. They Ooh. are gonna have to form a club <laughs> of people who just cannot get rid of their acne and are the talk of the town. Because I think will they- resort to boobo tuber pus or however however you say that word. That is that is how everybody yeah. says. No, I don't think anybody can say that word the way it's. <laughs> booba, boob, like the way it's supposed to be booba said. Booba tuba. Boob, yeah. Boob, yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and the other character that gets mentioned um, in here, who we'll, who we'll be seeing a lot of, is John Dolish, um, one of the Aurors, um, who works for the Ministry and is siding currently with the administration. He will become a running joke in the in that he, poor guy, he is very learned, very smart, very strong, and he will come at the bad end of every single duel that he gets into by the end of the series so there um, should be there should be like a joke about that like oh you've just done a dollish like <laughs> i'm sure that's what people say now in the wizarding <laughs> world <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm it's probably far cleverer than that but listeners yeah. i just think he's like he's like kenny from south park <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my god you just I'm Dolish. <laughs> oh man, that's perfect. Uh, wow. That's good. Side note, we'll John John Dolish is his first name actually he is named after John Noe from uh Pottercast, I believe. The Wait, what? Yeah, that's his that's where his first name comes from. No, so, that's yes, fake. It's it's he's confirmed. Yes. Where in one of their in one of their podcasts, Joe confirms it. I believe to them. Are you sure she wasn't joking? No, nope, she wasn't. She gave she gave it to she gave that to him because apparently he was super obsessed with Dolish because he felt bad for him. So pick a character, you guys, that you feel really bad for in whatever rolling books come out, and maybe you'll get them named after you. Just make a connection with one of them. You never know. Wow. Well, props <laughs> Just, to John. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go Noe. Nice. 
And I see, Kat, you had a few points, actually, about this confrontation in here as well. Oh, yeah, they're really silly points, but... um, I like silly. Oh, good. Yeah, I don't think it was. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that um, I'm taking sign language class. And um, I noticed here that McGonagall mentions, obviously jokingly, that um, when they're... you know, mention sign language anyway. And I was just thinking, um, cause obviously like different countries have different versions of sign language. Do you think wizards have their own? Like, are there deaf wizards is my other question. I guess that's implied. Well, I always, I've, I've wondered about this ever since this was another problematic post that came up on Pottermore and again, rolling your listening. So fix it. But there's a, <laughs> there's a section that she actually put up about, uh, illness and disability in the wizarding world. And she basically said that the easily fixable things like a cough or, you know, bad allergies or even more extreme illnesses that we face can be fixed by wizards. Um, And there's a lot of parallels for disability in the wizarding world. As I've mentioned before, Neville's parents are a reflection of that, as is Dumbledore's sister. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as how like as far as that goes those are magical induced disabilities mm-hmm. on both of those cases and we've never seen an individual who is i don't believe we have seen a wizard who is either blind or deaf have we no i mean obviously harry has glasses mm-hmm. yeah which not you would blind, think would yeah. be something to fix but apparently not like yeah. wizard laser <laughs> right. <laughs> Just point the wand right at right at your eye, and surely oh, nothing boy. will go wrong. <laughs> that won't end badly. Um, I-, I would assume there would have to be deaf wizards. Well, Just yeah, because some people are born. Yeah, I mean that's like a human thing, stuff. not a muggle yeah, thing. Exactly. Well, well, and if you get, and I'm sure you know about this cat, if you get into the the kind of social aspect of the the deaf community there are members of the deaf community who if given the opportunity to have hearing implants they don't want them right that's true Mm -hmm. so if you have a wizard who can't hear who's going to hogwarts and they don't want a hearing aid can is yeah that's a perfectly valid question they couldn't have a hearing aid because it's electronic so it wouldn't even work (laughs) we're like a magical one though right you know like maybe like that Who little knows? <laughs> yeah. do it. <laughs> Dumbledore could do it. That's a good answer. I was thinking maybe one of those little horns that that dwarf uses in the Hobbit. Yes, in the Hobbit. That's exactly what I was thinking. Perfect. I was just about to say that. Uh, well, I said it first. <laughs> Damn it. Um, and my other point was, um, you know, right here is where Kingsley modifies her memory, and Harry hears him whisper. Okay, Kingsley is totally badass. Why didn't he use nonverbal magic? Am I alone in feeling like nonverbal magic kind of like ex- kind of existed, but then randomly appeared a little bit in subsequent installments? Like I remember being like, "Oh, why didn't they start learning this sooner?" Um, yes, I yes, nonverbal magic. Can you magic use is... it on harder spells? But is that like a hard spell? No, <laughs> no, not. he's not like he's not erasing her memory he's just modifying it right um so is it is it just are there other people going around doing that well no because as to veronica's point like in the first book which is which has the least continuity as far as spell work quirrell's like Mm -hmm. snapping his fingers and making his ropes appear out of the air which not okay that's not (laughs) that doesn't work at all (laughs) cheryl klein wasn't on the case that's right she wasn't there yet um (laughs) 
But yeah, no, I think there are issues with the continuity of, especially, yes, when it does come to the nonverbal magic. And Rowling, she tries to kind of fix it in Half-Blood Prince. Um, it's brought up a lot there, but it yeah. it doesn't quite do, it doesn't quite cover all the damage. Yeah, I guess that was, you know, it kind of felt like Half-Blood Prince was like, she was like, oh, wait, they should be able to do magic without talking. Let's introduce yeah. this right now. Well, Way you, too late in the series. Could it be, perhaps, that Kingsley actually did speak it so that a few people in the room would know what he did? Oh. Hmm. That's hmm. true. This is, this is a very... I'm amazed when... Especially this reread, I'm amazed they got away with this. Right, well, right. Yeah. Because, I mean, if Harry hears it... Somebody did, else had to hear it. Somebody else had to hear it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's there the the way this plan, this whole plan goes down. Obviously, was not made ahead of time. Like it, it just goes so amazingly well, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. thank it's God, Dumbledore. thank God, Kingsley was in the room. Kingsley is yet another person who I would love to know a lot more oh, about. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. Like Lupin, he seems to be a lot more powerful than he's given credit for. Oh, a let's hope we get as much agree. backstory on Kingsley as we did on Lupin. So, and, uh, and, but going back to the main characters who are focused on in this chapter, we get a little more interaction, interesting interactions between Dumbledore and Harry. And, uh, let's see the first point. I just looked at my first point. I'm like, Voldemort, Harry and love. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> what was I was a, thinking. There was a point there somewhere. Oh, Michael okay. wants to talk about the entire series all at once. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with these chapters is we're getting into things that end up tying into the entire yeah, series. It's true. Um, but this, this particular point I wanted to make is about um, the issue of when Dumbledore touches Harry physically and Harry again feels the need to strike at him. Um, thanks to Voldemort. If Dumbledore, because what we, and I reread this chapter to make that part to make sure Harry, of course, is able to keep to keep Voldemort out of his head by having strong, positive emotions of love and friendship, et cetera, et cetera. If Dumbledore had just shown Harry some kindness and, and attention this year, do you think it actually could have helped Harry keep Voldemort out rather than the occlumency? Was it just as simple as Dumbledore paying attention to Harry? Oh. Why not? And I just wonder, because we're also dealing, of course, with a 15-year-old boy who has a lot of issues going on in his life that are not going to keep him happy regardless. But I just had to wonder if Dumbledore had had shown Harry the affection he needed in this book, would that have just worked without the occlumency? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Well, no, Ooh. because because he was still deep in the pit of his grief, I think, throughout this whole book. So, you know, I mean, love, you know, conquers all or whatever, but it doesn't uh, magically fix everything, I think. Uh, Harry's dark place would still have been a dark place, this book. Hmm. Okay. I'm... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still mixed on that one, just because when Dumbledore finally does talk to Harry about how he's been feeling the whole year and Harry is able to vent. Um, it seems good for Harry. And of course, Harry will not have such drastic possessions by Voldemort in future. Um, so I was just, I'm throwing that out there. Something to mull over. Maybe Dumbledore had played things a little differently. Well, I think he does, he does admit fault at the end. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. I, I really love that because, you know, Harry's blaming himself and he's just a, he's just a kid basically. And Dumbledore saying, you know, if I had trusted you, if I had shared with you, if I had, you know, not kept serious in this house, if I had, you know, then things would be different. And this is like mm-hmm. such a great moment for Dumbledore. Yeah. That's yeah. my favorite chapter in the entire series. Yeah. I can't wait. The, the one last, where Dumbledore. The last prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. One, and keeping on track with Dumbledore, where'd he go? What was he doing? <laughs> what what happened? He just disappeared. What, where'd he go? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just like that he mentions, he's like, oh, I could go to Azkaban, Azkaban and break out, but you know, like, what a waste of time. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, pfft. Like, but how would he break out? Like, magic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <He's> Dumbledore. <laughs> We've already established this cat. He's Dumbledore. Right. Sirius broke out too. Do, maybe right, Dumbledore but that's that's Patron- or what is that thing called? Animagus. Animagus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But like maybe. that's it's stum- well, he knows he did nothing wrong. That's yeah, true. that's true. So that the easier, Dementors don't have any power have over him. Yeah, but then like, why yeah. did it stump Dumbledore? Like, if Dumbledore can break out of Azkaban and like has a theory on how to do it, why did it stump him so much when Sirius did it? Like, huh? How did Sirius Black break out of Azkaban? Yeah. But I could do it in a heartbeat. Like, mm, I'm always still suspicious that Dumbledore knew a little more about what was going on there than he was telling in Prisoner of Azkaban. I always think Dumbledore knows more than he's saying. Yeah, Puppet Master, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, as Steve okay. said. Yeah, fine. But, okay, I I concede. Wait, but what he was doing? I thought about this all day. Actually, good <laughs> because this has been bothering me since this book came out, and it has never been yeah. explained. He just leaves for months and months and months, and then he comes back, and he's like, "Okay, that was fun. I went to Aruba." Like, what, what occurred to me earlier is that in book six, he appears with a lot of information about the Horcruxes. That mm-hmm. I assume took a lot of investigation to get to. I mean, how do you find the gaunt shack? You know, like that's so mm. difficult. So I think my theory is that in these months he was, um, you know, scoping out the situation. Because his main goal, um, you know, behind the scenes in the series seems to be figuring out how many Horcruxes there are and how to destroy them and, you know, where they are. Hmm. That's what I always thought as well. Yeah. And, Michael, it wasn't months and months because we're in April right now. So, really, he yeah. was only gone for, like, five weeks. I don't mm-hmm. like when Dumbledore leaves, you guys. It makes me upset. <laughs> <laughs> it happens in almost every book, though. Yeah. I know. And I get upset every time. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very upsetting. I just thought that... Really Dum- upset in book six. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Actually, no. Because I... Uh, when I saw the chapter title, The White Tomb, I was like, gee, who would get a white tomb? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a giveaway, but I, I just I just had wondered because Dumbledore, um, he 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 states specifically in the chapter, I am not leaving to go into hiding. Fudge will soon wish he'd never dislodged me from Hogwarts. I promise you. Um, so I thought maybe he was doing something more, not so related to the Horcruxes, but perhaps more to the immediate need of the of the current climate. I think it's probably both. Honestly, I mean. And that sounds more of a like a promise than a threat. I mean, mm. I know he says the word promise, but you you know what I mean. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the last point I wanted to bring up is that uh, we get a few of the portraits doing some pretty interesting things in this chapter. The oh, yeah. the first interesting portrait to note um, is the one who calls the ministry out for 
their horribleness, and Dumbledore chides the portrait, and the portrait's name is Fortescue. Like the mm. ice cream guy! Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yum, yum. Mm. I didn't make that connection until I read it again this time. That Me too. Same, Same thing. Well, and interestingly enough, and something we've never gotten an explanation on, Florian Fortescue disappears in Book 7 because he's been kidnapped by Death Eaters. And... He's presumed dead, actually, at this point. Most people, like, there's no confirmation what happened to him. Is that what the, is is that, like, the, did we find a connection, you guys? Is Florian Fortescue related to the Fortescue who was a headmaster of Hogwarts and knows all the secrets of the castle? <gasps> Maybe. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I didn't think of that. Yeah, I, that's, I think got, that's a good theory. Sold. Write write that fan fiction, <laughs> Veronica, please. Okay, I'm on it. <laughs> In your spare time. Right. Yep. You know what this you know what this makes me think of? Mm, mm-hmm. Butterbeer ice cream. And how Ew. and how hungry I am and how badly I want uh, some right now. So gross. So gross, everybody. Kristen, it is not gross. You are in the majority. I mean, the minority. (laughs) The minority. Yeah, the majority. We all have down with butterbeer. Veronica, that was so good. I had the frozen kind. Oh, okay. The only thing that's good is the white stuff on top. That's it. Veronica, you've been to the park? I have, yeah. Diagon Alley? I attended Ascendio. No, not Diagon Alley. Isn't that the new one? Yes. 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 Yeah, no, I was at, uh, I mean... What is it? Hogsmeade, Hogsmeade. right? Yeah. 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 Well, whatever the old, you know, the older one. But I went to yeah. uh, Ascendio a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, and, okay. Uh, and we got to enter the park and Wait, like, this stupid question, but did you go as, like, Veronica Roth or did you go as, like, yourself? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, she knows. I think she question. knows what yeah, I mean. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. No, I went as an author, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, you should go to Diagon Alley. It's really cool. Yeah. No, and the- I'm so excited. The ice cream is really good. Don't Kristen, listen which, to Kristen. Kristen, which what? ice cream did you have? Mmm, clotted cream. So oh, good. see, ooh, I didn't like that one. Clotted, oh, clotted cream. <laughs> <laughs> I had the I had the lavender and, and Earl Grey. And Earl Grey, that was delicious. Yeah, that was oh, pretty good too. Oh my god, Florian Fortescue, we love you, and we're sad that you're dead. Mwah. Oh yeah, rest in peace, my friend. But you're, thank you're you for st- passing on your recipes to <laughs> yes, yes. other people. <laughs> but and yes, Pottermore, Joe, you elaborated on a whole backstory for Celestina Warbeck, so I expect a backstory for Florian Fortescue. Oh, that's a good tie-in. That's true. It, mm-hmm. it could happen, and of course, okay. I just have to quote it because it is a fantastic, probably oh, yes. one of the most remembered lines from the series as a whole. Um, Given to Kingsley in the movies because appropriately so, and exactly. it works, yeah, I agree. and it works. But uh, as uh, happens in the book, uh, Phineas Nigelis says to the Minister of Magic, "You know, Minister, I disagree with Dumbledore on many counts, but you cannot deny he's got style." <laughs> yes, sure does. And so ends Chapter Twenty Seven: The Centaur and the Sneak. I just want to talk about that quote forever. I'm sorry. But we'll move into the podcast question of the week for next week. Well, it's for this week, but you'll answer it for next week. Anyway. Derp, derp, derp. <laughs> derp, derp. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, actually, this one came to me pretty easily, um, surprisingly. They don't always. But my question to everybody, the listeners out there, is this. In the final scene of the chapter, the one that we were just talking about, we see the confrontation between the Ministry and Dumbledore. 
Once Fudge orders Dawlish and Kingsley Shackable to seize Dumbledore, a flash of silver light, you know, flitters around the room, and they're all knocked out cold. So everyone in the room. As Harry, McGonagall, and Marietta wake up, the text notes that, quote, Fox the Phoenix soared in wide circles above them, singing softly, end quote. The four of them converse, so Harry, McGonagall, Marietta, and Dumbledore. And then Dumbledore takes hold of Fox's tail feather, and they leave. The second they are gone, everyone else in the room wakes up. So my question is, what kept them asleep? Was it the jinx? You know, that silver light flitter thing? The presence of Dumbledore as the spellcaster? Or was it, which is what I think, Fox's song? You know, how said he was singing softly. Mm -hmm. Or was it all of them together? So you guys know what to do, listeners. Come up with an answer first. And then go to alohomora.mugglenet.com and tell us your answer. And we might read it on the show next week. That's a really good question. I, I every, every time I've read this point, that point where Fox is just <clears throat> flying around the room singing, I'm like, "What is he doing?" Yeah. I mean, he has to be there for a reason, and she, you know, mm-hmm. she only mentions mm-hmm. this. You know, I'm not going to put ideas in your head. Just answer the question, <laughs> please, please, and thank you. And of course, we must thank our guest Veronica Roth for joining us on the show today. Thanks Veronica, for having me. this is so fun. An absolute pleasure to have you. We hope you enjoyed your time here. Yeah, and you are welcome back anytime. So, oh, thanks. You're very Maybe no. I'll write in an answer to that question. Now that I'm googling phoenixes, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have to put your name as Veronica right, Roth. Is what I was trying to say. <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, but everybody will be just looking for that one person who's not all of our regular commenters. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, and they'd be like, "That's her. That's her. I know it." <laughs> um, Veronica, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on the web? Oh, um, I am around at veronicarothbooks.com and also on Twitter at, at Veronica Roth. Oh, are you an avid tweeter? Yes. Oh, good. Well, you got any uh, new stuff coming up? Uh, I am always writing, but for now, it's just for fun. Oh, good. Oh, For fun is good. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Are you looking forward to the next... Um, movie in your series yeah i haven't um i was on set a little less this time because they're shooting in atlanta instead of in chicago which is obviously where i live um Mm. but so i but i saw a lot of cool things and so i'm really excited to see how they put it together but um so are we it's pretty early (laughs) so (laughs) well thank you again very much yeah thanks guys so much this is really great and if anyone out there listening wants to be on the show much like veronica roth today you know write how to a do book. that. Yeah, then write a book. No. no. So you know how to you know how to do this. Go over to alohomora.mugglenet.com. Visit the be on the show page. You don't need any fancy equipment to be on the show. Just even a set of Apple headphones with a little microphone on it will do. That's it. You're all set. You can also contact us on Twitter at alohomoramn or Facebook at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Um, or Tumblr, MN Alohomora Podcast, as well as Snapchat at MN underscore Alohomora. Goodness gracious. You can yes, also. Yes, we have a lot of these, <laughs> I know. You can also Skype us at 206 Go Albus, 206 462 5287, as well as Audio Boom at. Oh, um, so yeah. just. I don't know Audio Boom. I always thought you said Audio Boo. It we is... used to, and now oh, it's Audio okay. Boom. Okay. 
You can also go to Audio Boom. It's free. You just need a microphone and keep your audio boom under 60 seconds. That is at alohamora.mugglenet.com. <laughs> Sorry. No, no you're that doing was fine. so well. <laughs> that was fine to me. And of course, we also have our Alohomora store for you to check out plenty of merchandise. We've got sweatshirts, long sleeve tees, tote bags, flip flops. You may not want those for this time of the year, but those sweatshirts are fantastic for this time. And so many more things, including some fantastic new t-shirts that we have out now. Your Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, Gryffindor, Slytherin. They are all showing, and they are all on that shirt. Cool. Make sure and check those out. <laughs> Every time. I really should learn to pause when I say Ravenclaw. Cool. Um, <laughs> we also have ringtones that are free and available on the Alohomora website. Make sure and check those out. And don't forget about our smartphone app. It is available seemingly worldwide, as Eric likes to point out. I think I actually wrote that in there, but anyway. You did, and, I did. and Eric always says, as we've written in the docs. Yes. <laughs> anyway, prices vary depending on your location, of course. And it has things on there like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and so much more. Like today, there's going to be a lot of stuff cut out of this show, so if you want to hear it, you should download the app. It's like $2, honestly. <laughs> and what it does is the proceeds help us keep the show on the air. So thank you for everybody who has and will download it. And with that, just like Dumbledore, we shall make our quick escape. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kristen Keys. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 105 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore with style. to say that (laughs) (laughs) galloping gargoyles open the Dumbledore (laughs) that's a good one I like it I like that one too actually That's cool. Wait, okay, mm-hmm. finish the episode before we geek out. Okay, okay. before we <gasps> <gasps> Okay, here we go. <laughs> hold hold the geekiness in. All right. Here we go. Are you working? Are you working? I don't know the rest of the song. I hate it. I work with kids and so we have to now sing like everything I do is like a, some kind of song. And I was singing one song like playing with one of the kids and like picking him up and dropping him, but safely. And I was like, I don't know the rest of the words to this song, but it's so great. And I was like, man, I really need to catch up on my uh, little kid songs.